As we get started into this new study, um, I, I just want to address uh, that I am beyond uh, thankful and grateful um, and humbled to be able to preach and to minister to you guys uh, in a uh, new capacity this semester and in the semesters following. Um, and I'm thankful for you guys being here with me tonight uh, to jump into God's Word. Um, we will be in Jude this semester for all four of the sermons that I preach. Uh, Clint will be preaching as well. Um, I believe Ace is preaching and David Polk is preaching as well. Um, and so I'm sure that those will be edifying. But we will be um, intermittently uh, working our way through this short book of Jude. And so um, if you would go ahead and turn in your Bibles there, if you need help finding it, uh, just turn to Revelation and then back a page. Um, so uh, much of the context that we're going to need for the book of Jude is actually going to come from our time tonight. Um, this is going to kind of be a preface to the rest of the book um, as we look at these first two verses. So instead of uh, giving context right on the front end, the whole thing's going to be a good bit of context uh, mixed throughout. Um, but we see later in Jude that Jude gives us clear warnings of judgment while providing clear directives to believers on how to live in such times. So let us stand together and honor the reading of God's word. Jude, verses 1 and 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Amen. You may be seated. So jumping straight into verse 1, what we see here at the very beginning of Jude's letter in the first word is Jude's identity. Jude's full name is Judas, but he is not Judas Iscariot, which may have something to do with why he is using Jude or why the translators chose to use uh, the name Jude over Judas, um, just to clarify which Jude, which Judas he is. Um, and many of you know someone with your same name. Some of you are in the room together tonight, right? Um, and some of you would not want to be identified with some of those people that share your name, right? Um, and I think that's what Jude is experiencing here. And David and David, I hope you guys would be okay with being identified with one another. But Spurgeon makes this point in his commentary. He says um, that he contemplates what Jude must have felt every time he thought about his name or wrote his name down, sharing that name with Judas Iscariot. Surely he often remembered the other Judas. Spurgeon writes, I think that the tears, that tears must have come to his eyes as he remembered the other Judas with the same name, indeed, and by birth with the same nature. If left to himself, he might have proved a traitor to his master, just like the other Judas. But grace had made him to differ from the man who betrayed his Lord. If it had been your case or mine, I'm sure that we could not have written down that name without reflecting upon our own obligations to the sovereign grace of God that kept us from being sons of perdition. So then, even in the first word of this letter, we see that uh, when we think of our names, like Jude thought of his name, we can praise God for the grace that he has bestowed upon us and the opportunity that we have to pray for those who um, 
might share a name. We can pray for those Elijah's or Andrew's or David's um, who may be far from the Lord. So then we see right after Jude introduces himself, he continues to introduce himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. And what does it mean to be a servant or a slave of Christ? Well, we're going to get into this later, but um, Jude is believed to be the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Yet he starts out by identifying himself as a servant before mentioning his familial tie to our Lord. Why? Because he's exercising humility and he's deferring to Christ's authority here. And this is a common way that the apostles introduce themselves in their, in their writings. We see Paul do this in Romans, Philippians, and Titus. James does this in his letter, and Peter does it as well in 2 Peter, as identifying themselves as servants of Christ. And many would object to this imagery of slavery. Why, why use this when it's so offensive to us? But I would challenge us to lean into this image and contemplate the realities that it communicates to us. In a day where the mere mention of slavery produces sparks of strife in our conversations, we must proclaim this reality that we are servants, slaves of Christ with the utmost joy. Not many people in the world would argue with you that being a Christian is akin to slavery, but they may argue with you that they are enslaved. Every man wants to conceive of himself as a free man. No man wants a master yet no man has ever been free. We're all born into sin. Sin is the binding rule of our lives. We, before Christ comes into our lives, we can choose nothing other than sin. We may not choose righteousness until God changes our heart. And so this is an area where this thing called the inescapable principle fits in. It's not whether, but which. So it's not whether or not you will be enslaved, but who will be your master? Will it be Christ or will it be Satan? Slaves are bought. And likewise, you, Christian, were bought with the blood of Christ. Under sin, our chains restrained us from doing good. But under Christ, our chains bind us to truth, righteousness, goodness, and freedom. Though slaves of Christ are not free to leave, none have ever wanted to. Regenerate Christians are as the slaves that we see in Exodus chapter 21. These slaves are identified as bond servants. They love their masters so much that they desire to remain bound to them forever. And they actually go through a uh, ritual ceremony where they have their ears pierced um, to symbolize this. And this is the imagery that we see Jude identifying with here. He is a slave to Christ. This seemingly small phrase sets the tone for the text as we continue to work through Jude. Jude, in the first part of his first sentence in this letter, is staking a flag into the ground. Jude is not his own, but he belongs to his master, Jesus Christ. And he is doing the work that his master obligates him to do. And this is what we are called to do as Christians. We are called to be obedient to Christ. Jude engages in big fights with harsh words in this short letter, but he does so as one who is acting in obedience to, his, to the things that his master has called him to. We see him continue on to identify himself as the brother of James. And so, like I mentioned earlier, he does mention his familial ties, but he does so in all humility. 
though there's some debate, like I said, there's, it's traditionally believed that Jude is Jesus' half-brother, as Mary is recorded as having other boys other than Jesus named James and Judas. And here we have a Judas identifying as a brother of James. Mark 6.3 says in reference to Jesus, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph, Joseph and Judas and Simon? So, I believe this phrasing here, uh, brother of James, to be one of clarity and of deference. It's clarifying because it helps us know which Judas this is. But it's also an act of deference because he doesn't mention his uh, direct relationship to Christ. He doesn't do that directly. Jude doesn't say, I have authority because I'm the Lord's brother. He says, my authority flows from the one whom I serve. So we see, following this, who this letter is to. It's to those who are called. What does that mean, though? The question and conversation of who uh, a letter of Scripture is being addressed to often comes up with people that are first studying the Bible uh, or they're studying um, uh, theological categories such as soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Um, if we get the audience wrong, like if we think that this is, let's say, to the world and not to Christians, then we are going to get wild interpretations of this text if we don't understand who it's actually addressing. So at the beginning of many of the books of the Bible, you'll see this note. This letter is to the elect. We see that in Titus. To the saints. We see that in Philippians. To the saints and the faithful. We see that in Ephesians and in Colossians. Those loved by God and called to be saints. We see that in Romans. And here, to the called. Understanding who this letter is being written to is of utmost importance for our time and the word together, interpreting this letter's contents and making applications. So we see a, clarif a clarifying note here after Jude says that it's to those who are called. It's to those who are called, comma, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So these are Christians that Jude is writing to. Thus, the exhortation that's found in this letter was meant for and can be applied in the lives of Christians. And to be honest with you guys, we could look at this uh, phrase alone for our time together and fill it all up, but um, we must press on. But before I move on to our next portion, um, I want to continue to point out a few notes. This verse, this phrase, point, puts on display a glorious doctrine called monergism, which means one work. In short, monergism is the doctrine that God and God alone saves us. It is God's one work. It is, it is not something that God requires assistance in. God saves us down to the desire for him and our faith in him. Thomas Manton, the Puritan, says, No creature can cleanse his own heart, nor can he make himself holy any more than he can create himself. We are able to defile ourselves, but we cannot cleanse ourselves. A sheep can go astray by itself, but it can never return to the fold without the shepherd's help and care. 
This is true, and this is what Jude hits on by referring to the Christians he's writing to as called. So scripture refers to multiple different calls, a general call in which all who hear the gospel message preached are called to trust in the Lord and to repent and be baptized. And then there's also another uh, category, category for calling, um, the effectual call. And this is where God gives particular calls to particular men, which they do not resist. So there's a call that goes out to many, but few are chosen. The call that Jude references here is the effectual call that each Christian has had that has led us to place our faith in Christ. This is evidenced by the second half of this phrase. The described love of God um, here is the love that God is displaying towards his people, the elect. This is seen in their being kept in their perseverance in their faith. So some translations, if you're using the King James in particular, um, will not say beloved by God the Father, but they will say sanctified by God the Father. Um, so what gives? This is due to a uh, variation in some of the manuscripts that are used to translate scripture from its original language into English. Um, but I believe regardless of which phrase we use here, it's referring to the same group of people. It's referring to Christians. Both terms, sanctified and beloved, are describing people who have been set apart in a particular way by God. And indeed, you, Christian, have been sanctified by your heavenly Father, who delights in you and calls you beloved. So do you feel loved by God? That's how you're described here, Christian. Far too often, we forget that our God is himself love and that he has set his affections upon us. I'll challenge you with this. Our God is unchanging. If you are a Christian who feels unloved, you need to evaluate why. Are you communing with God and with his people through worship, the sacraments, and spiritual disciplines? We may not complain of thirst. We may not complain of thirst if we refuse to go to the fountain and how are we to go to the fountain but in faith? We must go to the means that God has given us to experience him in faith that, we, that he will bless it. Maybe you don't feel the love of God and you say, but I do read, pray, and worship, preacher. I still don't feel the love of God the Father. What are you looking for? Oftentimes our expectations are out of line. Let me be clear. If you are expecting God setting his love upon you to look like wealth by the world's metrics, then your expectations are sorely misaligned. God does bless his people with those things often, but not receiving those things could be the means by which he is loving you. What do I mean by that? I mean, he could be keeping you from the things that would take your eyes off the creator and put them onto the created. God's love is first and foremost evidenced by the spiritual blessings that he has richly lavished upon us. 
when I've experienced this feeling of being far off from God, it is not because God has taken his affections off of me, but because I have taken mine off of him. When we turn from the light, we may not be surprised to find darkness. If we focus on the other description that we get from the King James Version, sanctified by God the Father, we see how this love is set upon us. It is through Christ that we have been sanctified. He washed us in his blood and thus set the church apart for himself as a pure and spotless bride. But aside from being loved and set apart, Jude says that we are kept for Jesus Christ. The church is not just kept in Jesus Christ. It's not just kept by Jesus Christ. Jude tells us that we are kept for Jesus Christ. We are his bride church and we are those who make up his body here on earth. We reflect his glory to those in the world and we bless all those whom we come into contact with when we walk in faith. Aside from the obvious value that's delivered here to us um, in belonging to the King of Kings, one ought to note that God is a jealous God. Spurgeon says in his commentary, you must not touch that treasure that is set apart for the King. Moving into verse two, we see, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This prefatory benediction that Jude is offering up is a prayer for the recipients of this letter. It relayed his earnest love and well wishes for those that were addressed. And it also sets the tone for his letter. Jude writes hard exhortation to these brothers, but it's from a place of wanting to see these blessings, namely mercy, peace, and love manifested in their churches, in their families, and in their lives personally. He sharply reminds them of doctrine that he assumes that they've forgotten because of the state of their affairs. He recounts the pattern of judgment of God on the wicked, and he exhorts them to fight for the faith. These are things that are needed for them to turn their eyes upon God and obey, them, obey him. They need mercy, peace, and love to obey God. But also, obedience is necessary for these people if they would see any mercy, peace, or love. And that obedience comes from where? From the Holy Spirit that works in the lives of Christians. So this line then represents more than just a pleasant string of words to encourage brothers. This is a petition to an all-powerful God who is able to make such things so. This phrase continues grounding Jude's work in a rich theology that understands how God's world works. For this letter to have its intended effect, God must be involved in everything, in the writing, in the delivery, in the reading, and in the application. Top to bottom, without God working, there will be no blessing. So Jude prays. Is your life a prayerful one? Do you offer up intercessory prayer for those who are in need of divine intervention? One author points out that when our prayers are sparse, it shows how little we estimate prayer's power to be. He says, where prayer is absent, it reinforces the assumption that we're okay without God. Jude is an exhortation to a people living in a time such as ours. And Jude thought it important 
to ground the words that he exhorted these Christians with in prayer, to soak this short letter in prayer to God. So let us be sure to realize that without prayer, we will not succeed in our ministry. We are in a wartime and the enemies have us surrounded. Look around. We need Jude's words to spur us on to fight for our faith. But if we go into that fight without prayer, we will fail. When we attempt to exalt ourselves to a state of self-sufficiency, we set ourselves against God. You must fight, Christian, but you must pray first. And why would we want to engage in battle without God's supporting us? Without our God supporting us. Humble yourself before your Lord in prayer. And like Jude, learn to intercede on behalf of those who have a battle ahead of them. Easy application here. Pray for your pastor. I promise that he needs it. You are likely unaware of exactly how much your pastor is dealing with, um, but God is. Ask the Lord to strengthen him. Pray for Clint and Ace as they continue to embark on the journey of church planting. Pray for your family and friends and the specific situations you know that they're struggling with. So not only is Jude modeling and praying uh, this prayer uh, for these blessings to be given, but he's praying that they would what? Be multiplied. He's praying for them in abundance, as Manson points out in his commentary. So now we'll transition to look at each three um, of these uh, blessings individually. So we'll start out with mercy. May mercy be multiplied to you. Romans 9, 23 describes Christians as vessels of mercy, which God prepared beforehand for glory. The image that we see is that believers are like containers into which mercy is continually poured. Though we deserve wrath, God offers us mercy instead. Instead of pouring out wrath upon us, he took it upon himself in our place. In the Gospels, after Jesus heals the man that's demon-possessed, the man begs to follow Christ and to be with him. But Christ refuses this petition. And this may seem a little bit odd to us until we hear Christ's words. Christ tells him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. It's Mark 5, 19. This is something that we desperately need to understand today. When we are saved, we are saved from our past. When we are confronted by our flesh, our enemies, or devils that try to throw our past in our face and say, look at what you have done. You don't deserve this. They misunderstand. These enemies of Christ, these enemies of us as Christians, misunderstand and pervert how our past is to be viewed. Our past is not something that we must hide from, but it's something that can powerfully contrast the life that Christ has given us. We've been saved from the depths of sin and we have life in Christ. The sin that you want to hide from 
if confessed and repented of, has no power over you. It cannot cancel you. It only stands to show how powerful your Savior is. When we tell others of how Christ has saved us, we don't put on a facade of previous or current perfection. We admit to our brokenness and exalt the one who is making us whole and praise God that he has had mercy on us. Do you know how disarming this is whenever you encounter an unbeliever and they say, yeah, but, but you're a sinner too. And you say, yeah, I am. <laughs> and you don't even know the half of it. Like that's the beautiful part of the gospel. God saved me from my sin. I don't have to be ashamed of that. Like Christ has taken this on and paid for it. Why would, why would I still feel shame for something that he's paid for? Another way that we can apply Jude's prayer for mercy is by showing it to one another. Life within the church is messy. Amen? David knows this. I work with him every single day. <laughs> this messiness is why we need mercy. As we seek to follow Christ and walk with one another, we will sin against one another. So the choice that we have as one being sinned against is whether or not to continue to follow in the footsteps of our Savior, imitating his mercy to us, to others, by not counting ourselves more important than them and having forgiveness ready for them. David does this really well, by the way. Um, when I sin against him, he, he, he forgives me quickly. When we take what Christ has given us and we give it to others, it multiplies and that's exactly what Jude prays for here. May peace be multiplied to you. In order to be obedient to the call that Jude gives in verse 3 to contend for the faith, which we haven't gotten to yet, but we'll get to in a couple of weeks. There must be believers who do not fear, but have peace. Like in order to be ready to contend for this faith, you cannot be a person who is paralyzed by Fear. You have to have peace in your soul to be ready to do the work that Christ has called us to do, that Jude is calling us to do on behalf of Christ. Acting on the call to contend for the faith and remove false teachers brings peace, as we'll see. When division is present within the church, it's because someone is not submitting to the word of God. In some situations, multiple parties are not submitting to the word of God. And I would dare to say that's probably more often than not the case, right? We are all sinners um, and we sin often. But when there's a divide, there's at least one party that needs to repent and turn to Christ and experience peace. When men who have the word of God on their side go up against men who are teaching false doctrine. It is not the men who have biblical truth creating the divide. Let me rephrase that. As men confront false teachers, these men that do the confronting, if they are doing so in faith and with the Bible backing them, they are not the ones making the division. The division already exists. They are merely seeking to restore the peace. So the wicked men in the church are the ones that bring a divide. And many people think that if they just ignore these issues, that it'll go away. But we are to do what? Contend for the faith. We are to protect and fight for right doctrine. 
rolling over when someone is injecting poison into the congregation only delays the inevitable confrontation and it intensifies the magnitude of the conflict. So removing false teachers restores peace. The man fighting for this should do so with peace in mind as the end goal. Men, don't let a largely feminized culture of the evangelical church paralyze you into suppressing your urge to justly fight. God calls you to be a peacemaker, yes, but there will be no peace apart from Christ and his teachings. Warring against the enemy is your duty. Cornelius Van Til says, there is not a square inch of space where, nor a minute of time where, the believer can withdraw from the responsibility of being a soldier of the cross. Satan must be driven from the field. Christ must rule. The order that Christ's rule brings in our lives, in our churches, is the means by which peace will be brought into our world. Jude continues, may love be multiplied to you. When we image God rightly, we will love. God is love. Love has forever existed between the Father, Son, and Spirit. When we are shown love through salvation, the only correct response is to show it to others. Amen? We must be acquainted with this authentic love, the love of God, to be able to love rightly. And many counterfeits of love exist today. People murder and mutilate and have the nerve to call it love. They personify evil and call themselves good. Yet many of these people have never felt love. They've never had someone do something for them truly out of concern for them. When we go out and we embody the love of God, others will notice its potency. They will crave it even if they seethe when it is shown. We all crave love because we're all made in the image of the triune God who is in himself love. First John 4 verses 7 through 12 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is, far, is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this love, God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have been loved by God, or excuse me, not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is um, perfected in us. So here we see that our love for one another is evidence of God's love for us. Do you see that? In other words, our love is proof of God's love being within us. When we truly love others, it stands as a testament and as an assurance 
of our salvation. John says that the, in the last sentence of what I just read, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So how will this love be manifest? John says it again in, in 1 John three eighteen. He says, little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. So you may not say that you love someone and then act in a manner that's contrary to that. The prayer that love would be multiplied to you is a prayer for these Christians to walk out their faith consistently. Do you see that? The church is often accused of being hypocritical. Have you heard this? May it not be so among us, especially of our love for each other. Christ says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's John 13, 35. So Jude's address should be kept in mind as we continue in the coming sermons to mind through the short letter for its wisdom. Because we've been catechized by our culture, we will have to guard against an impulse to find Jude's tone too sharp, his message too mean, and his arguments in need of nuance. If we too would be servants of Christ like Jude, if we are to prove our calling, if we are to have the blessings of Christ's rule, we must embrace the angular vision that Jude gives these Christians who are having their churches invaded by ungodly people destined for wrath. We, can, we have a choice in, in front of us. We can either submit to the wrathful man, the false teacher, whose end is condemnation, or we may submit to our Lord, the merciful man who offers us redemption. As we seek to apply this book and all of God's word to our lives, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Most merciful God, we thank you for your word and for our time in it. We petition you now that you would seal that word in our hearts. May you increase our courage as we seek the increase of your kingdom. May we be multipliers of mercy, peace, and love to our colleagues. Would you continue to bless our time of worship as we seek to bless you? We ask all this in your son's name. Amen.